a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. However you happen to stumble across this little program, I'm very grateful to have you as part of my audience. Also want to thank my sponsors who make this show possible on a daily basis. They include lifesavingfood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, MonticelloCollege.org, HSLAmmo.com, as well as Pure-Light.com. I have show notes for you if you if you find any of the topics or any of the guests that I feature on this program interesting. Well, I'd invite you just to, you know, trundle on over to the com. You'll find show notes for every single day and every single episode that I publish. And it's, look, I don't put these show notes together so, hey, uh, in addition to talking, you can also read what I write. I do a few annotations, but mainly what I'm trying to do is connect you with these information sources. So let's just say that, that something strikes your fancy, you're a little bit curious, you want to know more about it, you can do so. And frankly, in a time where there is so much misinformation and so much just limiting of what's considered fit to report, you got to be willing to do your own homework. I don't think it's possible for a person to have an informed view of the world. You can't know everything, right? But but to, to have a well-rounded view of the world, if you're relying particularly on just mass media sources, and I don't care if it's Fox News, I don't care if it's CNN, if, you, if you're just feeding your mind on one particular flavor of information, conservative or progressive or, you know, some other variant like that, you're not getting a well-rounded meal. I mean, it's the equivalent of uh, feasting on deep-fried Twinkies, you know, intellectually speaking. So I'm adding a few reality supplements to your diet. I appreciate the opportunity to do so. I want to start with uh, the concept of outsourcing our thinking as well as our policy decisions. This is something that has been, I mean, as, as science and technology have progressed and, you know, the complexity of, of various issues has, has grown with, uh, you know, the abundance of human knowledge and, and what we've been able to discover we have seen people more willing to, well, you know, I don't know how to put a man on the moon, but my government does. So NASA, you know, go ahead and do your thing. And in some areas that may not be such a bad idea. Although <laughs> you look at uh, look at what the billionaires are doing right now with their their privately funded space races. You know, they're still advancing the technology. They're still bringing a lot of cool things to the table, but they're not, uh, you know, fleecing the taxpayers in order to make it happen. Just a little something to consider. There's also a downside when we outsource our thinking and our policy decisions to experts who are politicized or otherwise who come with an agenda. In fact, it's a higher price tag than most people realize. Found a great article today on the American Institute for Economic Research website. This is from Christopher Lingle, and it's called Scientific Authoritarianism Erodes Private Property and Human Liberty. And he starts with a quote from Hannah Arendt on the origins of totalitarianism. Hannah Arendt said, A fundamental difference between modern dictatorships and all other tyrannies of the past 
is that terror is no longer used as a means to exterminate and frighten opponents, but as an instrument to rule masses of people who are perfectly obedient. Oh man, I feel like I need to just sit back and kind of let that settle in for a moment because does that not sound like kind of the, does that not sound like the dynamic that's driving this, this coercive push for we've got to have everybody vaccinated and anybody who doesn't get vaccinated is only resisting it out of a sense of selfishness and stupidity. No, people literally are saying that. In fact, I think it was David Frum who, who was, he was actually a very eloquent voice for conservatism for many, many years. I mean, I thought the guy was on some issues. I thought he was right on, but Really? Is that is that how limited the debate is? Well, there's only a couple of reasons why a person wouldn't get the vaccine. They're stupid or they're selfish. It couldn't possibly be something else. And I know, you know, this happens on the right, too. We we tend to question, you know, well, why did this person adv- advance this particular ideology? It's only because they're evil or because they're stupid. Most of the time, that's not true. But there's a huge problem when you start letting experts make those kinds of decisions or follow experts so religiously and so um, you're, you're so enthralled to them that you can't even conceive of the idea of questioning what they're saying. Now you're starting to put them above reality itself. And that doesn't sound anything like science. If it's something that can't be questioned, then it's not science. Christopher Lingle says, as a recipient of the EC of an E.C. Harwood Visiting Research Fellowship at the American Institute for Economic Research, he says, I'm inspired by tales of principled battles that Colonel Hardwood, Harwood rather, fought in support of the ideals behind the U.S. Constitution. Taking his oath to support that great document as a lodestar, his support for the cause of human liberty and personal dignity led him to be a vocal opponent of the policies of FDR's New Deal. As such, he continued doing so despite orders from his military commanders to cease his criticisms, eventually choosing to take early retirement from a promising military career as a graduate of West Point. Now, Christopher Lingle says, My lesson from his brave acts against the most powerful institutions in the U.S. is that being a true patriot requires supporting an ideology of individual freedom rather than accepting partisan interests that violate foundational precepts. As such, Americans wishing for a united and prosperous country should follow Edward Harwood's example to challenge the authority of government officials and question assertions of experts they use for support. Now, he says this contrarian behavior is even more urgent given the drift of public policy in recent years that would expand political powers beyond FDR's wildest dreams at the expense of private property rights and human liberty. As it is, public policies have become increasingly pointed toward responses to claims that irresponsible actions by humans are causing environmental degradation and climate change. And while the emergence of a novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, and the disease that it might cause, COVID-19, are now at center stage, they share equal billing with the former only slightly in the background. In all events... This pair of menaces offers a convenient pretense for government officials to seek expansions in their powers that give them greater control over human actions and private resources. Initially, the specter of climate change was not enough to induce most citizens to accept enhanced political power that would diminish their liberty and curtail their personal rights. 
However, fear ginned up during the recent pandemic based on pronouncements reflecting expert authority caused individuals to stop thinking of health as a personal issue and to embrace public health. Now, the notion that public health reflects an objective reality must be challenged, especially since so much focus is only on one among many viruses and only one disease among many ailments that afflict mankind. He says it's troubling that these political feats of legerdemain have have induced rather many citizens to accept an artificial collective construct. With solidarity dominating individual autonomy and security elevated over human liberty. Man, that, that could not be stated better. And while human health and protecting or rehabilitating the natural environment are indisputably worthy goals, a holistic approach to these matters requires considering their impact on the individual lives of humans. Curbs on individual behavior and resource use to serve public health or the natural environment involve an unhealthy confusion of politics and science. In the end, the non-pharmaceutical interventions related to the COVID-19 pandemic might turn out to have been a dress rehearsal that serves as a roadmap for climate action to offset global warming. And even if there is agreement on problems arising from human activity... The debate should be about the efficacy of the range of remedial actions that are available. As such, the quest for solutions should begin with an understanding that government interventions can often cause problems rather than be an appropriate remedy. He says, for example, governments failed to serve as guardians of the natural environment as seen in the ecological destruction in the name of authoritarian socialism practiced by the Soviet bloc or mainland China. In those cases, the expansion of the scope of private actions and a partial retreat from state control over resources brought improvements. While such obvious failures of authoritarianism combined or rather associated with communism led them to be widely rejected, there is a risk that ecologically based or pseudoscientific authoritarianism could replace it. That sounds like a legitimate concern to me. We're going to come back to this in just a few moments. I would encourage you to check out the article for yourself. It's posted in the show notes at the com. Sat simple show notes for July 29th, 2021. We'll take a very quick break and we'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing an article from Christopher Lingle. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. And it's about how authoritarianism, particularly scientific authoritarianism, erodes private property as well as human rights. And I think this is a very timely message. This is the reason why I'm sharing it. It's because so many people have uh, have grown, uh, I don't know if complacent or comfortable is a better word. I'm going to go with comfortable just because I think that that seems to sound a little less like they're too stupid to realize what they're doing. But they're comfortable giving experts the power to make decisions 
that we should be making or that we should at least be considering and and trying to decide, do I give my consent to this or not? In the article, he talks about a book by the name of The Counter-Revolution of Science, in which F.A. Hayek identified the possibility of a pseudoscientific authoritarianism under the rubric of scientism, involving a shift in the scientific method from strict empiricism, critical thought, and objectivity, toward non-empirical, purely subjective, elitist, and collectivist approaches to science. And I'm sorry, as I read about that latter approach, I don't know why, but Dr. Fauci's mind, or Dr. Fauci's face popped into my mind. And, and it's only for this reason, okay? I don't want to make it sound like you're pronouncing judgment on the soul of Dr. Fauci. I'm just observing that he is, he epitomizes the kind of expert who is joined to government at the hip, and is absolutely 100% incapable of uttering the words, I was wrong, or I don't know. Christopher Lingle says, as such, consensus replaces strict empiricism and independent open criticism normally associated with the scientific method. Since scientism as scientific consensus trumps everything else, including reason, There's a danger that falsehoods, even those previously proven false, could be elevated by just a majority of scientists accepting them. He says an emerging form of scientism follows along the lines of the communist-era bureaucrats who engaged in social engineering and compelled individuals to act on behalf of the wider community. Pursuit of social goals, whether public health or environmentalism, that ignore individual rights and human liberty have often led to disastrous outcomes. Indeed, the worst failures of socialism and the pursuit of social goals were brought about by unintended and unforeseen consequences. Besides material depredation associated with historical experiments with socialism, there was a loss of social capital from interfering with mutual trust that tends to emerge from voluntary exchanges. Should citizens resist limits on their individual liberty and rights to achieve collective goals, authoritarian repression becomes an inevitable instrument to, quote, pacify the masses. Such excesses and abuse of state power occurred over a vast range of collectivist regimes. So, for example, National Socialists under Adolf Hitler implemented policies that might appeal to some of the most extreme ecologists of today. One element of the philosophy of the Nazi party promoted the good of the whole over the good of the individual. Now, on the one hand, there was an explicit opposition to alcohol and tobacco consumption. More ominously, compulsory sterilization was required of the mentally ill, ending with more than 350,000 persons being sterilized against their will by 1939. Medical technicians, central to the operations of the Nazi state, perpetuated scientific nostrums of evolution and genetic hygiene based on eugenics to advance racial purity. Christopher Lingle says many Nazi supporters in the early days of the regime may never have imagined the terrible outcomes of following this foul ideology. As such, caution should be applied to assess the scientific wisdom that informs anxieties over deterioration of the natural environment or the health of members of a community. Just as many of the accepted truths of the Green Movement are based upon selective application of science, so are the truths guiding health health policies in the time of COVID-19. So while Hitler used false generalities about Jews and gypsies, 
environmentalists rely on exaggerated claims, often unsupported by logic or science or data. Consider the unfulfilled prophecies of a report by the Club of Rome, Limits to Growth, that foresaw an inevitable global armed conflict arising from resource depletion before the end of the 20th century. An example of scientism addressing the natural environment might be identified as ecologism. In other words, state-imposed interventions, regulations, and coercion to protect the natural environment. However, he says, these actions must minimize interference with the peaceful exercise of freedom of choice and the pursuit of personal dignity, or the harm to the human environment could exceed the benefits. An effect of ecologism is to encourage intolerance toward individual choice and to oppose private ownership of property and resources. Evidence of this is found in acts of eco-terrorism and the fact that confiscation of private property to promote environmental goals has attracted support. In the extreme, environmentalists tend to claim that nature is inherently and objectively valuable. But this complaint is incoherent since human actions are an inescapable part of the reality of the natural world. Therefore, attempts to conjure up ethical reasons for injunctions against human alteration or some parts of the use of some parts of the natural world are arbitrary and inappropriate. And similarly, edicts in support of public health that disregard human agency have caused a rupture in the social fabric by by inducing people to view others as a dangerous vector of disease. I think they're looking at the unvaccinated or the unmasked here, maybe both. Mask mandates for an entire population, community-wide lockdowns and vaccine passports contradict a foundational notion of justice that innocence innocence rather is presumed until guilt is proven. Meanwhile, governments encourage citizens to inform on or to shame anyone refusing to accept the lines drawn by their arbitrary public health goals. One of the worst elements of pandemic policies is the impact on children of public health mandates. Kids have been terrorized by being told that violations of these rules might cause the death of a loved one. In turn, such fears not only destabilize their mental health, but they might also drive a wedge between them and their parents. Now, it's notable that within less than one year, nearly all the state-imposed non-pharmaceutical interventions that contradicted decades of established medical and scientific knowledge. It's almost like science was following policy rather than the reverse. For example, border closures had been considered inappropriate, mask wearing as a general strategy ineffective, quarantining the entire population misguided, and the human immune system was seen as the first line of defense against pathogens. All were canceled in the same way as were statues of Confederate war veterans. Shifting attention from public health policies to those addressing the natural environment, those that disregard the human environment can be counterproductive toward achieving their goals. Restraining individuals on the grounds of protecting the natural environment might make communities worse off if entrepreneurs are unable to serve as the engines of economic growth and innovation. Christopher Lingle says as it is, Suppressing access to market-based rewards or profits tends to slow the pace of technological advance and dampen gains in income. So while fewer advances in technology can hinder rising incomes, doing so will also inhibit both the means and motivation for environmental protection. In all events, government intervention and regulating human behavior are not the only ways to resolve problems of the natural environment or the health of members of a community. 
Greater intellectual energy should be put into ways to harness the beneficial effects of voluntary choice in markets as a substitute for the compulsion of government mandates. Now, for their part, economists have exerted considerable effort to examine ways in which the pricing system can bring about desired reductions in pollution and other similar problems. Similarly, an alignment of private capacities with public interests led to remarkably rapid advances in vaccine research. Now, this is even if the long-term effects remain unknown. We'll have to come back to this in a few moments, but can you see what he's saying here? It's not that we're saying, ah, just ignore the problems, pretend they don't exist. No. But take a bigger, broader view of how you're going about solving the problem, and let's just make sure that we're not causing bigger problems in a rush to collectivize everything. We'll be back in a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. This is an article from Christopher Lingle from the American Institute for Economic Research. Scientific authoritarianism erodes private property and human liberty. I think he is sounding a warning that uh, that more people should be paying attention to. And, and it comes down to when we start outsourcing our thinking or at least outsourcing our, our solutions to only those who wear lab coats or only those who wear uniforms, We're missing something. And one of the biggest things we're missing here is that government is supposed to be working for the people. Its whole purpose for existence is to protect our rights. But in this way, when you start to join government and and science and you you start to to see that line blur between, hey, we're just trying to, to do something good here. We're trying to protect you. It can quickly become just another person's agenda with the force of the government backing it. And that's a big problem. Lingle says, in the case of environmental problems, market-based mechanisms like marketing pollution rights or privatizing wilderness areas and wildlife have been proposed. Now, there are also innovative techniques like electronic tagging that allow identifying ownership of dispersed resources or tracing sources of pollution and setting a price on behavior. He says, each of these proposals relies upon providing incentives that encourage improved monitoring and better use of resources and the environment. In particular, private ownership provides a strong incentive for careful use of natural resources by allowing owners to benefit directly from conservation and preservation that can bring enhanced values in the present and the future. So as this millennium unfolds, the world community faces mixed omens of hope and despair for the future. While the global demise of authoritarian regimes merits three cheers, the outcomes from the heightened awareness of environmental issues might warrant only two cheers, depending on where they take us. Unfortunately, the advancement of public health over individual health invites two jeers. <laughs> if the logic of ecologism leads to the erosion of property rights and human liberty from co- coercively imposed environmental rights, it will almost certainly weaken support for preserving the natural environment. Similarly, scientific authoritarianism, governments, and international bodies to control human behavior in response to the pandemic have become increasingly contentious as citizens lose patience and begin to resist public health directives. 
He says attempts to impose unquestioned acceptance of specific scientific claims by publicly denigrating opponents or withholding support for research and projects that do not support the consensus narrative does not promote science per se, especially if it silences independent thought. There is a risk of creating a dichotomy of good and bad science, leading to a toxic situation where positions are guided and hardened by partisan politics. True science should not be seen to be monolithic. Just as with philosophy, doing science requires an open and skeptical mind. Scientists seek to present a unified and authoritative voice or are guided by partisan interests should not be trusted when they opine on public health or the natural environment. Resisting the advance of scientific authoritarianism has become the front line for protection of human liberty and the sanctity of private property. Can you see what he's getting at here? Could you tell the difference? And it's okay if you say, well, I don't know. I don't know if I'm smart enough to tell the difference. That's okay. The point is you can become well-informed enough to tell that difference. And we probably better do it sooner than later. Let's shift gears here for a moment and talk for a moment about uh, why government and laws are called into existence. I don't think it's a very difficult formula to follow. They are called into existence to protect us from violence and fraud and to ensure that justice prevails. I'm hearkening to the uh, definition provided by Frederick Bastiat in his essay, The Law. But what happens when the government breaks its own laws with impunity? Judge Andrew Napolitano has a spot-on description of what we have allowed our government to become. He says, in October of 2020... 14 people were arrested in Michigan and accused of being participants in a plot to kidnap Michigan Governor uh, Gretchen Whitmer. The governor had imposed draconian restrictions on religious travel and commercial activities as a means, she claimed, to stem the spread of COVID-19. All of her restrictions were eventually found by courts to be unconstitutional under both the Michigan and U.S. constitutions. Sixteen plotters were supposedly planning to try the governor in a makeshift court and, if convicted, to impose some sort of punishment. Before the plotters could spring into action, the FBI arrested 14 of them. Two plotters were not arrested since one of them was a paid FBI informant and the other was an undercover FBI agent. In pleadings filed in federal court last week, the defendants revealed that the FBI enticed, cajoled, and manipulated them into this plot and even trained them and paid their expenses. Hooray! They saved us from a monster they created. And Judge Napolitano asks, can the government get away with planting the seeds of a crime in the minds of innocent folks? providing them with the means for the crime, arresting them before the crime takes place, and then charging them with a crime that never occurred? Here's the backstory. He says, The FBI has perfected the art of the sting. In the years immediately following the attacks on 9-11, FBI agents regularly found young Arab males in America who were essentially loners, disenchanted with life, and talked them into fantastic plots. The FBI supplied what the loners thought were explosives for the New York subway system, the Brooklyn Bridge, and then heroically arrested them before the inert explosives could be detonated. Now, these FBI-manufactured plots happened dozens of times to unlucky and unwary targets. 
The targets were identified by gender and ethnicity, both characteristics that federal law prohibits the government from using as the sole or even a significant basis for prosecutorial decisions. But the FBI repeatedly gets away with this because of wrong-headed Supreme Court decisions that permit law enforcement to lie, deceive, and talk persons into committing crimes so long as they were predisposed to criminal acts before law enforcement came along. So a typical sting begins with a street-level or barroom or internet conversation between an undercover agent and a target, during which the agent's job is to elicit the target's predisposition to commit a crime. Once that predisposition has been established, the government knows that whatever else it does is fair game. And when the target is made to look like a participant in a crime that never comes to pass, he can be arrested and prosecuted. This breaks down for law enforcement when the defendant rejects a plea offer and the case goes to trial. That is what's happening in the fake plot to kidnap Whitmer. And he says the government hates this, as it must reveal its sources and methods to an often incredulous jury. So to avoid a jury trial, jury trial rather, the government will grossly overcharge the defendant, exposing him to life in prison and terrifying him and his lawyer into accepting a guilty plea to a lesser charge with a finite jail term far less than life. And all this is typically done for a crime that never took place. Now, there are numerous moral and constitutional problems with this behavior, says Judge Napolitano. The first is the illicit use of government assets to entrap an innocent person. How does the government decide whom to entrap? Add to this the absence of due process. The feds fear due process. They fear a jury saying enough is enough, hence the overcharging and guilty plea scenario. The government will claim that the defendant was a conspirator, a person who agreed with others to commit a crime, or at least one of them took a material step in furtherance of the crime. In order to fortify its case against the unwitting defendant, The government usually has him take the material step in furtherance of the plot by having him deliver what he believes is an explosive, but in truth is not, to the place of its intended detonation only to arrive and find his fellow plotters there to arrest him. Now, Judge Napolitano says, I've interviewed FBI officials about these techniques. On the record, they acknowledge that no one was harmed and no one was in danger by their government-created plot. They also argue that they took a bad person predisposed to crime off the streets. Yet being bad and having a criminal predisposition are not crimes. They are states of mind protected by the First Amendment. What they will never acknowledge is that these schemes are concocted to make the FBI look like heroes who swooped in at the last minute to save the public. Before the courts began permitting this behavior by law enforcement, every definition of crime used the word harm. But eventually that word harm became wrong. At common law, the only crimes were malum in se, acts that are wrong in and of themselves, such as an aggression against person or property. Eventually, crimes became malum prohibitum, wrong because they're prohibited. The former is the natural law, the non-aggression principle that prohibits all, even the government, from initiating or threatening force or interference. The latter is big government run wild, which defines whatever it wants as wrong, even a mythical FBI-created plot to kidnap a public official that could never have come to pass. There's more to this article. We're going to come back to it in a few moments. If you want to check it out for yourself, go to thebrianhideshow.com, show notes for July 29th, and you can see what Judge Napolitano has to say here. 
Look, I, I don't mean to reflect badly on the brave individuals who are really trying to make a difference and do the right thing. But I have to wonder how many of those people in the FBI can legitimately claim that title or claim that motivation. I think it's a smaller number than we'd be willing to believe. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to Patriot Home Mortgage, specifically the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. I'll tell you, if you are lucky enough to be relocating to Utah, and especially southern Utah, first of all, you're headed to a very, very beautiful state. Now, the the only downside is, right now, the real estate market is pretty crazy. Heavy competition, very, very competitive, and, and it's, it's tough. You know, if, if a house goes on the market, it doesn't stay there very long. What that means is you have to have your ducks in a row. you got to be squared away right now. This is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in. Lots of experience, lots of clout to help you get the loan you need without delay. Now, Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You can stop in and see them at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George or call 435-703-4522. You can also find contact information in my show notes under my sponsors. Sharing an article from Judge Andrew Napolitano, what happens when the government breaks its own laws? And isn't it interesting to learn some of the details behind? I mean, I don't see the media trumpeting. I mean, they were talking about, oh, yeah, we broke up a plot. The FBI has broken up a plot here to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Oh, the militia is at it again. This is part of that right wing extremism and white supremacy, blah, blah, blah. Remember how they were getting people whipped up about that? But now we find out. Oh, yeah, most of the people who are actually urging people to do something wrong were FBI informants. And so they're creating a crime and then saving us from a crime of their creation. Now, Judge Napolitano points out the Constitution only defines two crimes, treason and debasing the monetary unit. Yet as government grew, it rewarded its patrons, punished its enemies, and made unlawful whatever it deemed wrong at the moment. Do you realize today there are 4,400 federal criminal statutes and some of them permit the feds themselves to commit crimes? Is this the government the framers of the Constitution gave us, he asks? Because regrettably, this is what the government they gave us has become. All right, here's another one. This is a, this is a topic that I hope has great relevance to you and as, as well as to me. Because we do not need to be bringing more anger into whatever conversations we're having with the people around us. But finding ground, the common ground these days takes some work. Ken McManigal, though, has an explanation that uh, this is probably worth it. It's an article titled, More in Common Than You Think. And he says, even when we disagree, we probably have more in common than you might think. In fact, he says, I probably want many of the same things you want. I have no respect for those who violate private property, even less, if possible, for those who harm the innocent. Wouldn't you agree? Then why would you and I ever be on the opposite side of an issue? He says, perhaps you tolerate methods of getting what you want that I can't tolerate. I don't believe politics or legislation is ever the right way to do anything. If I want a car, or even desperately need one in order to survive, I know I have no right to steal yours. 
Hiring a professional thief to steal one for me doesn't make it moral. In other words, no matter what I need or how badly I need it, having a politician impose a tax or entitlement to benefit me at your expense is wrong. I can't have any right to ask them for this favor. Now, if I don't like something you're doing, something that doesn't actually harm anyone's life, liberty, or property, I have no right to kidnap and cage you to make you stop. Nor do I have the right to shoot you if you resist being kidnapped. Hiring legislation enforcers with money that wasn't mine to spend to catch or shoot you on my behalf in the name of the law when you aren't violating anyone is no better. He says, if I don't have the right to do something, I can't have the right to ask anyone else to do it on my behalf. I don't have the right to ask that money stolen from you through taxation be spent on things that I want. I don't have the right to stop you from doing things I don't like if they don't violate anyone. I don't have the right to ask others to impose my will on you as a way to keep my hands clean. My hands would be bloody either way. He says, I'm not going to gang up with others and vote to forbid you from exercising your rights, even when I dislike what you do. Not even when this is seen as legal and called a civic responsibility or imagined to be a right. Kent McManigal says, there are limits to what I have a right to do, and even when others refuse to respect those limits, I'm not willing to do wrong, to use politics to get what I want. Oh, trust me, we've all had uh, times where we've indulged that little tyrant inside us. But I think Kent McManigal's making a very strong case why we shouldn't. And a good measure is, do I have, would I be okay to do this? against another person, you know, my neighbor's sitting out there on his back porch smoking a joint. Would I be right to go and take away his freedom, to kidnap him, to lock him in a cage, kill him if he resists? And if the answer is no, it doesn't become a righteous act when we ask someone wearing state authority or a state costume to go and do it for us. Shifting gears one last time, uh, my waistline is testament to how little food insecurity I've experienced throughout my life. Having said that, saw an article today that food insecurity has been on the rise throughout the pandemic. And we might be wise to uh, pay attention as to how and why it's happening. This is from Montana Business Quarterly. Daphne Hurling is the author. And she says, the long lines of people waiting for food at the country's food banks is an enduring image of the pandemic's impact on American families. Just as an aside, have you seen video or have you seen photographs of this? I haven't seen a lot lately, but all over the United States, people were turning to food pantries to feed themselves and their families. And these are people who, you know, were told you're not essential. You can't work. And the result was, first of all, a lot of people were experiencing food insecurity, but it was stretching a system that's been in place for decades. And the system, according to this article, has had to reinvent itself almost overnight to make sure they met the need and keep their customers and volunteers safe from COVID-19. In this case, Daphne Hurling says you might remember seeing the staggering number of cars waiting at drive through food distribution centers in places like San Antonio or Minneapolis. That need was also felt locally in cities like Missoula, where the Missoula Food Bank and Community Center went from helping 8,723 new customers in 2019 to 21,626 in 2020. That increase was just in new clients. The total number of individuals and households, or families rather, was even higher, reaching 32,400 
422 individuals and 11,317 households. Now, according to this article, over the past five years, the percentage of households experiencing food insecurity was trending down slightly from 12.6% in 2015 to 10.54% in 2019. However, it is estimated that the pandemic will increase that to 23%. A significant number of people fell into poverty and food insecurity as a result of the nationwide lockdown. Which, by the way, there, there's talk of people re-implementing these lockdowns. Let's throw a little gas on the fire, shall we? Workers who were furloughed or lost their jobs, parents who had to stay home with children and couldn't work full-time, had to turn to their local food pantries. Now, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, April 2020 saw the national unemployment rate jump to 14.7%. In Montana that same month, the unemployment rate peaked at 11.9%. Hardest hit of any group nationally, according to the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, were Native Americans with an unemployment rate of 26.3%. And across the state on Montana's Indian reservations, the unemployment rate ranged from 10.3% on the Flathead Reservation to 22.8% on the Rocky Boy Reservation. So this rise in need created an extraordinary challenge for organizations distributing food. In fact, almost overnight, food banks and pantries had to retool their distribution centers to avoid direct contact with their customers. Well, the numbers of those customers were going through the roof. Now, the article goes into the government response to food insecurity and, and offers uh, some really good perspective on this. You're going to have to check this out for yourself. Go to the show notes at the com, and uh, you can see what we're talking about here. But food insecurity is directly related to poverty. Meeting immediate needs through distributing excess food through food banks and pantries has become increasingly sophisticated and well-established, what some call the hunger industry. This pandemic has raised awareness of a U.S. food insecurity crisis and exposed some cracks in the existing system. But until policymakers address the underlying American inequality, getting food to people must be a priority, especially during economic upheavals like the COVID-19 pandemic. Here's my recommendation. Maybe you should be thinking about putting some things aside for yourself and your family, and maybe even a little extra to help your neighbors. Go to my show notes. Check out lifesavingfoods.com. I'm not telling you you have to buy this. I'm telling you just take a look and see. Maybe they have something that you could use. And if that is the case, I would greatly appreciate it if you would give uh, my friend Kendall Whiting your business. But the time to act is now while there is still plenty of food to go around because that growing food insecurity could make things a little panicky in some areas. Don't get caught in the panic. This is The Brian Hyde Show.